Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Fidelity North American Equity Class Portfolio Manager Darren Lekekerker is today's Fidelity Connects podcast guest for a focus on North American equities. For Canadian investors, Darren also co-manages Fidelity Global Natural Resources Fund alongside Joe Overdevest and is sub-portfolio manager on Canadian asset allocation, Canadian balance, and inflation-focused funds. Today's discussion was initially featured at a recent live event for advisors held on October 26th in Toronto, with Darren sharing how he is picking winners in this year's choppy markets. Darren joins host Glenn Davidson, VP Regional Sales for Ontario, and also touches on his investment style and shares which sectors he has an eye on, among other topics. Darren also fields questions from the live event audience, including how Canada is positioned in the global energy sector. As noted, today's podcast was recorded on October 26th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy, or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. So Darren Lekkerkirker is with us, and uh, Darren's somebody familiar to all of you, I'm sure, through different events, different uh, types of exposure like this, and always an interesting person to chat with, which is why I'm so glad you're here as well. Darren, why don't we talk about you first versus getting into the portfolios right away. You've got a background in M&A among a a number of uh, private equity, a bunch of interesting areas. How has that formed your investment process from your history to when you get to today? Sure. Thanks, Glenn, and thanks everyone for coming. I'm really uh, happy to be here, happy to see everyone. It's nice to be here in person. In terms of the question, great, good question. Look, I mean, I think for me, investing is about trying to uh, have an investment process and an investment style that's repeatable uh, and that results in like a good outcome, right? Like consistent performance, consistent results. I would define that as like strong absolute performance over time strong relative performance, higher than the ETF and higher than the peers. And so what's the style? The investment style, I would say, is I want to invest in like high-quality companies. I would define that as having a, a superior business. It's understandable. It's a good business model. It's got a superior return on invested capital that's rising uh, over time. Management team that we've interviewed, we feel comfortable with, that they're aligned economically with us as shareholders that they have a good track record of execution, that we like what they've done with capital allocation and what they, more importantly, what they plan to do. And then thirdly, valuation. And I would rank valuation third. I care more about having a great business and a solid management team. But in terms of valuation, I would focus on free cash flow yield as my preferred metric. And then in terms of investment process, I would say it's, it's really uh, a lot of it has to do with corporate access, meeting with uh, management teams. It's a big part of what I do. I spend a lot of time of my day meeting in person, um, now virtual also, 
And I think you can learn a lot about a, like a business, an industry, a sector, that company, other, other companies in the same sector through meeting with management teams. And I think being at Fidelity gives us an, an advantage here in terms of our breadth, the ability to cover companies across industries, across like the globe, and depth, getting one-on-one meetings. Also, I would say meeting with our analysts team, we have the uh, largest and best buy-side team in Canada in terms of analysts, portfolio managers, traders. I speak with them daily. I mean, I sit across from the the, U- the U.S. software analyst. So, you know, yesterday I'm there when the Microsoft results roll in and we can chat about it. We chat about it again this morning. I sit beside the Canadian energy analyst and so have conversations all day. So g- generally, like, that's what the, the process and style revolve around. And, it's, it's, and again, I just want to stress, it's really important. Like, I think a lot of people talk about process. You need to have a good process, but you need to check that, right? Like, you need to make sure that that investment process results in a good outcome. Otherwise, you may need to doubt how good that process is. And you need to have, have that outcome defined. I think the definition of outcome is important, right? It should be above average results. We all want above average results, which is a great point. I want to pick up on a couple of points that you made, which one was company meetings. So uh, that's what we do at Fidelity, uh, meeting with companies all the time. Hundreds and hundreds come through our offices all around the world, come through thousands, actually. Hundreds come through Toronto. But you also go to see companies. And then you mentioned virtual but I'll bet it's more fun to see them eye to eye. But how, how have things evolved since we seem to be hopefully on the other side of COVID maybe? Are you getting back out to see companies? What's happening? 100% it's better in person, right? And so I think that's probably why all of us are, are here as well, right? Yeah, uh, that's true. And so, um, look, I, I always like to think back to uh, when I started at Fidelity, they had this training program that I did for a month. And uh, one of the, the most fun training sessions they had was they brought in a former FBI agent that was in charge of interrogating, um, I guess, foreign agents or, or interrogating people. And it was training on how to conduct meetings, how to... This is top secret, by the way, how to, just, just amongst uh, us. How to interpret body language, tone, strange answers... And so I thought it was super interesting. And so I've, I've always kind of just one, it was interesting. And two, I've always tried to use that and try to interpret that. And I've tried to think, I'll be very thoughtful about how we do meetings. So for example, like, I mean, some of the easier ones are, does the person look nervous? You need to have a bit of a baseline. It could just be a nervous looking person normally. Um, but you need to have a bit of a baseline. Does the person sweating? Are they like touching their face a lot when they give answers? Are they being unusually sort of deceptive in the way they answer it. So I, I found that pretty interesting. One of the things I also like to do is like ask the question when you walk the CEO to the elevator after the meeting, and maybe it's like the meeting after the meeting is a little more informative. In terms of meetings, yeah, we are doing lots of meetings. We're, we're back at it in our, in our office. We're traveling as well. I'm traveling to a conference in uh, Chicago to meet all kinds of uh, industrial as well as other diversified industry companies. We're going to do like you know, more than 10 meetings a day. Um, should be should be great. Uh, I went to Montreal and did that um, as well. So yeah, traveling for meetings, visiting companies at their uh, offices as well. It's more uh, time consuming, I think, but I think you can learn more as well. I remember once somebody on your team was saying they were going to a conference at the Phoenician, which we were just at, and some of you were at a couple of weeks ago. And I thought, well, that's pretty good. You go down, maybe play some golf, go to the pool or whatever, maybe a couple of meetings. But then what I understood was when you go to conferences at nice hotels. The rooms are all full of companies, and you go in and have rapid-fire meetings. Like, there's time blocks, I guess, that you're going in. So there's no R&R. 
This yeah. is this is just getting in and efficiently seeing a lot of different businesses and companies in a short period of time. We're, we're trying to meet with as many uh, company management teams as we can while we're yeah. down there to learn as much as we can. Are, like, is this a good business that we want to invest in? Is this something we own that we want to remain invested in? So on. The other point you made was about how you sit across from this person and you sit across from that person. Just remind everybody, you, you aren't stuck in an office with a big door shut doing your own thing. It's a quite a different arrangement when you're in the office. Yeah, we have a team atmosphere. And so everyone sits out in the open. You know, look, I'll be honest, at first I wasn't certain about it because when we were in Boston, we did have the office office set up. And so I, I remember my, like when I first started at Fidelity, I'm like, oh, office on the 32nd floor overlooking the harbor where they threw the tea. And I'm like, oh, this feels great. It feels like I've made it. <laughs> and then when we moved to Toronto, it was like sort of an open concept team setting. But I've come to like it. I mean, I think it, it definitely is good for communication. You overhear conversations with, with other people. It's very easy to ask people uh, questions. So yeah, enjoy it. That's great. I'm glad that's going well. So now talk about how you go about building a portfolio. Yeah, sure. So like for me, it's really bottom up. And so what that means is it, it starts with like meetings with companies and do I like this company? Do I want to own this company? And what I, what I think about really is what are the like three or sort of four, what are the best ideas that I have? And I want to make sure that I really own those best ideas, because I think that if you don't really own those best ideas, how are you going to outperform uh, the indexes over time? And so that's how I think about it. And then I, I also do have a macro opinion. And so I think about, does this make sense from a, a macro perspective? What's happening with inflation? What's happening with rates? And is this, does this positioning make sense? So, and, and for the micro side of it, it's stock, the active side of it, you get an immense amount of research that comes across your computer. I was going to say your desk, but it's not all paper. It's whatever. But global research that's coming in for you to plow through. And then where do you get the macro side from? Yeah, that's a good question. The other thing I should also mention is that the top 10 of my portfolio is normally 40 to 50% of the overall portfolio. And I typically have between 40 and 50 stocks in the portfolio. Yeah, in terms of the bottom up, it's through company meetings, it's through conversations with the analysts that are sector experts, other PMs that are also strong generalist investors, uh, and also our, our traders sometimes. I would say with the macro, look, we, I think you just heard it. You just heard our, our macro expert team up here, and so speak conversations with David and David and Alon um, and Jeff, who, who didn't, uh, wasn't up here, but part of that team as well. Um, and then also, I, I think, other uh, uh, macro uh, experts on our team as well. I only asked that because they stayed to watch you, and I knew you'd say nice things about them. You see, everybody's <laughs> on one team, which is really good. Um, so you run uh, a very successful, uh, you're a part of the Canadian Balance Fund, where you're half of it with the equity component, so that's been wonderful. But the North American equity uh, portfolio that you run, talk about that, and is it similar or different than the equity component of Canadian Balanced? Right, so the Canadian Balance Fund is, is half equities and half bonds. I run the equities. And that's mostly Canadian equities with some U.S., probably only around 5% U.S. today. Um, in the past, it's been much higher than that, but that's what it is today. With the North American fund, it's much more of a U.S. fund. It's 70, long term, it's 70% U.S. large cap stocks and 30% Canadian large cap stocks. Today, it's, it's a little bit heavier or overweight on the Canadian side. As I, one, I, I like resources. Which, which is in Canada, obviously, and, and two, there's some idiosyncratic good ideas within Canada that I own. And so how similar are they? They tend to own 
in terms of the Canadian portfolio within North America, it would resemble my top ideas of the Canadian balance fund. And then the U.S. stocks within the Canadian balance fund would be the best ideas of the North American fund. So you said right now it's 70-30 favoring U.S. Right. What could you go to max for the U.S. Right. as far as you want? Yeah, I think I think you can go to ninety. I think it can go to ninety percent U.S., but it could only go to maximum fifty percent Canadian. Interesting. But I try to keep it. It's actually it's actually sixty sixty U.S. forty Canada today. Okay. But I try to keep it over time on that seventy U.S. thirty Canada. Like that's the sort of like long term target. What about cash? What's your what's what's in your brain as far as what you like cash wise, and is that an opportunistic angle today? Yeah, look, look, I think over time markets go up. And I think it's really, really hard in the short term to forecast the direction of markets. And I think that when you run with a lot of cash as part of the portfolio, I think that is a drag on returns over time. Uh, so for me, I try to remain fully invested and I try to have a low cash position. So within each of my funds, they're pretty close to fully invested. The cash position would be like low single digits. Interesting. Now, you said around 20 or 30% Canadian focus. What are the breadth of opportunities when you look at Canada? What kind of stands out to you from a sector standpoint? Right. So I think Canada has a good outlook right now, right? So I think, one, I like resources. I like energy. I like within materials. I like fertilizers. I think copper is starting to become attractive. So why do I like energy? I think within commodities, I think the supply side is extremely Tight. They're, you know, generally when you talk about commodities, you say like the, the cure for high prices is high prices, meaning that if price goes up, um, people invest in supply and all the supply comes on and then it absolutely kills the cycle and, and the price rolls over. But in this cycle, we haven't seen that. We've, we've actually seen um, the cycle being starved of supply. So why is that? I think one, you've had a decade of low prices and volatile prices. So companies don't want to invest too. I think ESG has convinced companies not to uh, invest in new supply. And I think there's all, a host of other reasons too. I think investors don't want companies to add supply because it rather have high prices and better returns. Uh, and I also think that the geographies where commodities are, are not uh, as favorable to producers. And so, for example, Chile produces 25% of the world's copper, and then they elected a more uh, socialist government that wants to hike taxes and hike royalties. And it's a little bit uncertain what that will be. So, you know, would you want to invest a billion dollars if you didn't know what the tax bill was? No, right? So it's, it's keeping uh, supply really tight. So that's one of the, the reasons why, like, resources. I'm going a little off track here from your question of, of okay. what are the opportunities within Canada. But I would say resources. I'd say idiosyncratically, I, I like the rails. I think the rails within Canada are really well positioned. And I like them. I follow the, the North American class one rails, like the large rails, really closely. I think the Canadian ones are much better positioned than the U.S. ones. Structurally, they have a lot larger, a longer length of haul, uh, which means that truck is less competitive with them. Um, so they have less competition. They've been able to, on, on the intermodal part of their business, which is where they compete with truck, and then they've been able to grow their volumes over time. If you look at the Canadian rails versus the U.S. rails, they've actually grown their volumes like 5-ish percent over the past 10 years, where the U.S. rails are kind of like just flat volumes. They're getting pricing. And so I think rails are an oligopoly, high return on capital, look really strong. I think there's some idiosyncratic opportunities for each, each, of, the, each of the two rails in Canada. Canadian National reported this morning really strong results of stocks up. And are they jammed as far as uh, volumes because of supply coming back on track? Yeah, it's a good question, right? And so 
I think, I think the answer is yes, that's an advantage. And so there were some end markets where there wasn't any supply. Yeah. So autos, right? No one could buy a car here. And so now that production is starting up, that should lead to more transportation across the yeah. rail, right? Yeah. And so that's pushing pricing very strong and it should keep volume strong. There's some other end markets that should be really strong too. Like agriculture, for example, was, was we just had a bad crop, right? Like a low yield. And so that should return and that should be really strong. It's a big, actually, big part of volume for Canadian rails. Timber, fertilizers are also strong. So there's some, some strong areas there. So I like the rails. I think waste looks really good. Um, it's a business model that's well insulated from in, uh, inflation and recession. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- there's a there's a few sort of key areas where uh, I'm investing in Canada, and I think look attractive. What was your thesis on copper? So copper, I think I would say it's it's becoming more attractive, and I think that's because the the copper price has sold off. Why is that? I think supply is really really tight, but I think China growth has been worse than people thought. Having said that, I think that China um, could potentially get better from here, right? The property market is the, is the main source of demand. It's really weak. Um, Z has been con- confirmed for its third term. You mm-hmm. could get more stimulus. There's not, not a sight an end to zero COVID policy, but that could happen. And as COVID becomes endemic in China, that could potentially add. I've seen a study from another bank that said that it's costing growth like four or five points. So that could really add up there. And then I think the other thing that's really important is supply is tight. China could be a little washed out. But in the medium term, what's really exciting is you have the uh, the energy transition of the economy, right? So right now we have a carbon economy and we're transitioning to a low carbon economy. And so that's incredibly metal intensive and in particular copper intensive. So an electric vehicle uses six times the amount of copper uh, as a, a normal uh, combustible engine vehicle. When you build renewable power like solar and wind, it's much more copper intensive than traditional power that's fired by natural gas or coal. So I think that there's huge demand coming for copper. Meanwhile, there's a couple of mines coming on this year and next year, but there's nothing really in the pipeline in between. So I think it has a nice setup. And meanwhile, the prices sold off and come down from the highs of uh, earlier this year. So primarily electrical transmission. Yes. Building infrastructure, building cars, just... Yeah. Okay. Um, what about for North American equity, if you think of your top 10 holdings, what are some names that stand out to you, maybe beyond the areas you've just spoken of, that we could talk with the, with the crowd about? Sure. So, uh, like, one of the areas is software, which is which is you know, not been a good place to be this year. Um, but I think the names have really sold off. I think uh, expectations have been reset lower, uh, and they're really manageable or, or attainable. I think these are really good businesses that have very sort of sticky revenue. They have the ability to raise prices. They've got really high margins and very long-term growth drivers. And now it's pretty reasonable price for me. I don't tend to invest in the high growth, high valuation, limited mm-hmm. profitability sector. It's not where I'm interested. I'm more in that sort of reasonable growth, reasonable valuation, but good business, good product. That's uh, that's a driver. So I'm, I think that's a really attractive area. I talked about railways. Well, sorry, just to go back to software, a company in your top 10, which fits the mold for you, the, what you've just talked about. What's a name that's taught? Right. So I own Microsoft. It reported this morning the stock's down. Um, but I, I think that would fit the mold of what I said. I think it's a, it's a fantastic business with very sort of long-term growth drivers in terms of 
productivity, the, the cloud, mm. cyber risk. And so um, I think the expectations have been reset lower, or con- continue to like it. Another one uh, that's in the top 10 is Constellation Software. And, gen- and so Constellation Software is very different. And so what it is, is it owns what's called um, vertical market software, which is like the software, like think about the software that runs your like dental office. You can't rip it out and still run that business. So it's really sticky. It's an acquisition model. And generally, I've become more, like, less positive on acquisition models because we're in a higher rate world, right? And so you're using debt. But these guys don't use debt. So I think it's an advantage for them. Prices have come down. They're competing with private equity, which is levering up to buy. So I think that's an advantage. And I think that they can continue to grow. And meanwhile, they have like huge margins and tons of free cash flow, which is what I really like in businesses. So these are some areas where of high-quality companies where the prices come down. I think it's attractive um, as a multi-year opportunity. I mentioned rails. Um, I own the rails. I think I have for a long time. Like Canadian Pacific has been in my top 10 or top three even for like the past like 11 years. Mm-hmm. The stock's um, been a multi-bagger over that time. I actually continue. Like it's weird to think like, hey, it's been a huge stock. It's multi-bag. But the opportunity, I think, still looks great, still looks fantastic. It's an oligopoly business. As I described earlier, I also think that they have an opportunity with their uh, acquisition of Kansas City Southern, um, which should close next year, which will uh, result in the fastest growing railway with the best management team and the most diversified uh, or lowest risk sort of uh, end markets. I talked about waste. I think waste is, has done relatively well this year because it's inflation and recession resistant. They're getting pricing. Um, they've announced a bunch of pricing that's going to still roll through next year. Uh, so it will result in really nice revenue growth next year if inflation does moderate and come down a little bit, particularly on the diesel side. Um, you could actually see margins. I think margins will expand without that, but they could get extra margins. And you could see some really strong um, capital deployment, just meaning that they generate a lot of free cash flow. And so they'll buy some mom and pop landfills. Turns out that all these guys that were running these... Um, small uh, landfills or garbage companies their kids uh, don't want to run it. So it kind of, kind of makes sense, right? I mean, yeah. you could, could see that. And, and uh, so they're able to buy it pretty cheaply and, and add to earnings. I remember seeing Joel Tillinghast once speak about the thousand companies he had in his portfolio, but he said a lot of times he would have very, very small positions so that they'd be on his radar. And you were saying earlier that you have maybe 40 or 50 names in your portfolio, so you don't have thousands. But do you have anything that's small right now that's we, that we've reported on that you could talk about that you've got your eye on? Something new and interesting that you're, you're thinking may pan out well uh, down the road? I've got I to keep those quiet, Glenn, if I'm going <laughs> to... No, we want everybody in here to buy the stuff. Be buying them, Anything right? that we've already and reported so, uh, on, but just some a and, new idea and or so, thought. Um, look, what I would generally say to answer your question is that I th- the things that I want to pivot to and add to the portfolio are the stocks that have been crushed, the stocks that mm-hmm. are down but it's a really great business. Like where, where am I seeing those? I'm seeing those within technology. I'm also seeing those within consumer cyclicals or mm-hmm. consumer discretionary. And so I think there's some great businesses here and there's fear in the market that these companies have over-earned during the sort of pandemic uh, work from home period. But I think that's for us, our team to comb through them one by one, learn the business, meet with the company and decide to buy them. And I think right now there's some that I'm adding to there and there's more that I'm looking at. I'm going to, as I mentioned, I'm going to a conference in November. I'm going to be meeting with some of these companies. Um, and also within the industrial 
sector as well. Some of these companies that have been hurt by inflation, but do have the ability to raise prices. Sometimes the issue is, is that they can't raise price immediately. They have to kind of layer it in. And meanwhile, the, the stock market treats the stock as if they'll never be able to raise price. Um, and they'll never be able to recover margin. And so if we think they can, then that's a big opportunity as well. You talk about companies that have been beaten down, and there's a lot. Uh, they've also, some have been beaten down disproportionately because of capitalization. Where do you go? What's your diversity as far as capitalization within your portfolio? Yeah, so I tend to prefer larger cap companies. I will invest in, like if I find a really exciting or really uh, attractive, is probably a better word, opportunity, in mid caps or small caps, I'll add that. But I try to manage that and not make that too much of the portfolio where there's some risk that if small caps really underperform, um, the overall portfolio would underperform. And I'm assuming that small cap would be more biased towards the U.S. versus a small cap Canadian name. Yeah, well, I mean, I've tended to own both, but I think the I think maybe what you're driving at is the definition of small cap. I mm-hmm. think for U.S. is like under two billion U.S. in market cap, or in Canada, I think it's maybe like under three hundred or under five hundred million. So mm-hmm. yeah, yes, you're right. Some would define a Canadian small cap as people sitting around a table in Calgary <laughs> with a map, right? So yeah, exactly. um, and a pickaxe. Uh, let's talk about the global natural resources. You manage that with Joe Overdevest. It's been fifteen years. Why did you get onto that in the first place? I'm assuming it's because of your analyst experience prior to becoming a portfolio manager. Yeah. So, hey, it's been a great story. And so, um, so yeah, it's been 15 years. So it's been a long time. And so, so Joe and I were both analysts in Boston. And I was covering materials uh, back when they were cool. Um, I remember that. It lasted a few years. And uh, it was a lot of fun. And so... Um, uh, I covered companies like Potash Corp and Ipsco and Alcan, and some, a lot of these companies are no longer, uh, DeFasco, no longer around. And uh, Joe was the energy analyst. And so we started running this fund when we were analysts. It was the first, we've both gone on to become diversified portfolio managers, but it was the first fund that we managed. And we started it in 2007. That was our inaugural year. And so, you know what, a little bit about that fund. So it's generally 50% materials, which I manage, and it's 50% energy, which he manages. It's a global fund, so it tends to be different than most of the other Canadian offerings in that category, which tend to be more Canadian-centric. It tends to be larger cap and higher quality companies. I think as a result, we've, we've shown versus the peers, we tend to really outperform them on the way down. And I think it has to do with our global focus, our focus on larger caps, and our focus on higher quality companies. We tend to... Um, you know, we realize this is a cyclical industry, and so we want to try to protect investors' capital on the way down so that we can make the money on the way up. Uh, a side note, you mentioned about becoming a diversified portfolio manager, but prior to that, what you covered as an analyst, what Joe covered, but you also covered other sectors, which is typical of all of our portfolio managers, cover a number of sectors, prove yourself, and then become a diversified portfolio manager. But it was great that they were able to create a fund uh, really uh, tied into the expertise that you both developed early on. When you talk about a global component to natural resources, where do you get your global feed from? I mean, you're not traveling all the ro- around the world on your own, are you? Yeah, so I think we're, we really have an advantage there because we're part of a large global asset management company. So we have analysts like all over the world, right? Like Boston, Toronto, London, Asia, um, like Hong Kong, Japan, Australia, like so all over. So it's been fantastic. I also find one positive benefit of the, the lockdown was that now everyone uses Teams. So it's actually really easy to get a hold of these people like very quickly. 
and also it's easy to easier to dial into virtual meetings uh, around the world. Sometimes you have to wake up a bit earlier, though. But with that global resources fund, what percentage would you go global versus more of a North American focus? Because there is a, is there a concern about minimizing risk in that respect as well and currency risk? Yeah, I don't have the exact global percentage off the top of my head, but roughly. But generally, I mean, maybe it's a third global. And so, and generally, uh, like for us, we're just trying to find the best company within the within the sector. And I think the currency risk matters less here when it's a currency company because if, if you're selling a barrel of oil, like that's really the price as opposed to the currency, anyway. Yeah, so yeah. that makes sense. Good. We have a couple of questions that are coming in, and don't forget, do enter them uh, in. Um, one of them has to do with healthcare sector in the U.S. Uh, given aging demographics, what do you think of that? Yeah, so I think there's positive uh, fundamentals there. I am invested in the sector in my North American equity fund. I find the services side of it appealing. Uh, I think that they tend to be U.S.-centric, which is really outperformed right now because U.S. has been sort of like the more dominant economy, even though it's been slowing. It's uh, a much better place, and so is North America. We haven't covered that, but North America looks really, really strong versus globally, right? Like, look what's happening in Europe. Look what's happening in Asia in terms of North America. You've got food and energy independence. You've got uh, the best source of innovation in the world in terms of the universities, in terms of Silicon Valley, and the best resources in the world, uh, and also um, the best demographic outlook within the G10. So I like the U.S., with, and so healthcare has a good exposure to that. You're right. Uh, people are aging. People tend to use much more healthcare when they're 65 versus when they're 25, and, and we're heading into that. So I think I think health insurance is, is an exciting area. I think med, med tech or medical devices is a good area. I think people didn't go in for procedures as much during um, COVID, so I think there's some built-up um, built procedure growth there. Uh, I also think that there's still some innovation in the pipeline to come here, uh, and also, I think life sciences tools is a, is a good area for investment as well. Interesting documentary just on, on the on aging population um, that you can find on YouTube called The Bubble. I watched it the other day. It's very interesting about this big community in Florida. I'll leave it to you to watch. Uh, hopefully that healthcare answer answered your question. And then there's a question on um, we might see more companies under stress in this environment. How do we think about or what do we think about acquisitions and, or roll-ups as a business strategy? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I touched on this a little earlier when I talked about software and Constellation software, which, which is a roll-up model but doesn't use debt. It's interesting that in Canada, so many of the big outperforming companies over the past 10 years have been sort of acquisition and roll-up models. And I think that makes sense, right? Like we had like zero rates for a long time. And I think that in a non-zero rate world, in a sort of more normalized interest rate world, things look different and different companies and industries will benefit. And I think that financially it'll be less attractive to do roll-ups just because there'll be a cost of debt with that. And so I do think it's a little less attractive in the case of Constellation software, which I like, they don't really use debt and their competitors do. So I think they'll be fine and maybe, maybe even better off. But on the margin, I would not prefer those types of companies, because I think I don't think that they'll have as good returns as they had in the past. What are your thoughts on, it's a word we haven't heard for a while, uh, certainly we heard it in abundance a couple of years ago, SPACs, special purpose acquisition huh. companies. I, it seemed to be something that got connected with the Kardashians, or so, so then it's gone, but, or Paris Hilton. <laughs> but we don't hear about them as often. 
uh, I think I read that NetJets is doing one or is just, just did one or something. But is that anything you've ever looked at uh, as far as ways for companies to get to, the, to public trading quickly? 2021 was so much fun, right? SPACs, crypto, meme stocks, all this stuff. Um, it's interesting what a zero-rate world will do, right? And so SPACs are special purpose acquisition companies, also known as blank check companies. It's a company that issues capital, and then the, the person goes and finds a company. And so they were being issued at 10 bucks a share, and the first trade was like 13 bucks a share. It didn't even make any sense. And so um, I think... Look, yeah, we we looked at them. There was a um, there was a couple I invested in, and I I sold at like well above what I paid for. Um, but it's not like a core part of the of the strategy. I don't like to invest in a blank check company because I don't know what they're going to buy. So you went there, you made money on them, but that's really not your character. It's no. not characteristic for no. you. No, yeah, interesting. It was fun. Question on Canada: How is it positioned in the global energy sector? I guess relatively. I think so. I like energy because I think supply is really restricted. I think that, look, it obviously matters if we have a recession or not. I think that commodities in 08 or 09, they went down, but they were kind of like like last down and first out. I think there's a chance that could happen just because we see, we do seem to be structurally short commodities, in particular energy, fertilizers, um, and copper. But I think copper, as I, as I mentioned, will take a little bit of time sure. before it works. In terms of how Canada position, look, like we've got like massive, massive resources. The issue in the past has been pipeline capacity, which is getting um, a little, a little bit better there. And so uh, I think that Canadian energy, the companies tend to trade way cheaper than the U.S. Uh, energy companies, and so I think that's attractive. And the reserves tend to be uh, longer, longer life. Uh, one of the other points about the resource companies, I'll just make here, is that I think that the the companies are really cheap. Um, in a market where expensive companies are being punished, which I think is exciting. I also think that um, they're doing the right thing. Like they're generally not, like I think in the last resource boom in sort of 07, 08, they were taking capital, their cash flow, and then investing it in these sort of risky, long-dated projects that some of them are actually coming on now, like 15 years later. And so that sucks when you're a shareholder. And so now instead they're actually raising the dividend and buying back stock, which is like really nice if you're a shareholder because it's nice to get the money back. We talked about E before, but there's a question on the S and the G. So how do you incorporate social and governance factors into your investment decisions? You know what? It's a good question because generally when people ask that, they really mostly mean the E. And so we, we have an ESG team within Fidelity. They're based in London um, and they're really, really focused on this stuff. So it's something that we're aware of. And it matters for, like, I'm focused on generating returns. It does matter for generating returns. Like, if you think about a company like Activision, which had social issues, um, it can impact the returns of the overall um, stock. Governance, I think governance always matters. That's something that before people cared about ESG, we always cared about governance. And so governance is like, does the company have a dual-class share structure, which just means that the CEOs get a super vote. I'm not in favor of that. I think that's bad. I think the CEOs would argue that's like... You know, good for long-term decision-making, but I, I just think it gives them too much power that we would rather have. A couple of uh, questions before we go, and one would be, um, what do you think the average investor is not keeping an eye on? You know what? I think that everyone's really focused on macro and inflation, and that's going to be the most important thing in the market, so I totally understand it. But I think that, like, look, I know, like, analysts and portfolio managers that have their own inflation models. They're not sort of 
like economists or not on the asset allocation team. And so if you're doing that, are you as focused on company fundamentals as you were before? Like I, I got to think maybe less. And so I think for me, I'm focused on bottom up um, stock picking and company fundamentals. And I think that sometimes in a macro driven market that may be overlooked. And I think it's going it, to it will really matter over time. Final question, where does North American equity fit your fund, North American equity, fit into a client's portfolio? You know, look, it's a, it's, I think it's a great portfolio for a Canadian investor. For, for me, like I, it's my largest financial holding by far. I invest in it every year with my bonus. I'm either the first or second largest shareholder every time I look in the overall fund. And I do that not to, so I can say this at a marketing event, but because I actually think it's the best way for me to compound my own capital. I think as a Canadian-based investor, I want to have both exposure to the U.S. and Canada. I've kind of articulated why I think that North America is the best place to invest. And I like that mix of having a little more U.S. and Canada, but also having some uh, flexibility. You said most of your financial holdings are in that. Does your wife know that? (laughs) Yeah, I know. Is she okay with it? Yeah, yeah. Okay, there's confidence there. That's good. (laughs) Thank you very much for joining us. Good question. Uh, (laughs) Wonderful to chat with you. And uh, Darren Lekkerkirker, everybody. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. And while visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.